everybody. Get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but foodie married beast anyway. And together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis on day, what is it, 47 or 48 of our home incarceration. But we're doing it, and we're coming to you live from our bedroom here in Kensington, Maryland. Uh, We've got a great show today. Uh, Nate Mook is joining us. Nate is the CEO of uh, World Central Kitchen, where he works hand-in-hand with uh, Jose Andres, uh, feeding people in need in disaster zones all over the world, and now very active uh, here in the U.S., and particularly in Washington, uh, working out of uh, the, the stadium and also out of restaurants to feed folks that, that need it here in this, during the shutdown. We're also going to be joined by Nicole Marcus. She's the founder and CEO of Hip City Veg. And we're going to talk about how she's leading a response to food shortages during the pandemic. She's delivering meals to every hospital battling COVID-19. Uh, she's got a bunch of other initiatives. I'm going to talk to her about that and about what her plans are if there is a meat shortage, in fact, that hits the U.S. Uh, Eric Bruner Yang is founder and chef and restaurateur. He's a James Beard finalist. He's a four-time Michelin Bib Gourmand winner. He's come up with something called the Power of Ten. It's a restaurant industry nonprofit initiative to aid independent restaurants across the country by re-employing staff uh, and sustaining business operations. We're going to hear all about it. It's very successful. We're here what he's doing. And Scott Harris is the owner of Catoctin and founder of Catoctin Creek Distillers. And a distiller in this marketplace is challenged to find markets for his goods, so we're going to find out how he's been uh, innovating and fighting to swim upstream stream against the uh, coronavirus-driven business slowdown. So, uh, Nick, why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been doing? Well, so we want to thank you all for joining us. We know that these are really bizarre, strange, and scary times, and every day we get new information on how we're living and what we're doing. So we have uh, the list, are you on it, dot com, the online e-zine has a list of absolutely everything of what's going on in the DC metro area for the hospitality and restaurant industry. So if you're looking, because we're all stuck inside and sheltering in place, if you're looking for uh, cocktail classes and cooking demos and discussions and just Zoom hangouts, they're all on the calendar on the list are you on it.com. We also have in the buzz column, just everything that's going on from roundups for Mother's Day, gifts for Mother's Day, um, Cinco de Mayo's on Tuesday. Believe it or not, so many restaurants in the area are willing to like deliver to your house mass quantities of tacos and margaritas. Um, so check that all out. It, it, it's a way to make it easier on you during this time, but it's also a great way to support uh, the local people uh, in the restaurant industry. And then lastly on there, we have a huge page about community outreach and ways that you can participate in what's going on, um, around DC, because sometimes you feel like I'm not doing anything. And you see all, you know, like we're going to be talking with Nate, you see all these people doing such great work. So that's one of the reasons why we're featuring all of them on the show, because we want you to know that you can watch and see what they're doing, but there's also ways to participate and all that is on the list as well. So I want to, at that point, I want to go to Nate. Nate, thank you so much for joining us today. 
you were on our show last year uh, with World Central Kitchen. You guys were working on wholly different things altogether. Let's just talk about the original mission of World Central Kitchen and how it's really sort of turned on a dime in this in the pandemic time. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, World Central Kitchen for the last uh, really two and a half years has really been focused on feeding uh, individuals after disasters, mostly natural disasters. So after hurricanes, after earthquakes, after wildfires, um, you know, World Central Kitchen kind of swoops in. We uh, work very closely with uh, the local resources on the ground, tapping into amazing chefs and restaurants and um, you know, building a response where we can feed tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people after disasters. Um, usually these are natural disasters. Sometimes these are man-made disasters, such as the government shutdown here in D.C. last year. But generally responding when, when, when uh, people and families need access to food. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but this is really unlike anything we've ever experienced before. I mean, it's, it's unlike anything the planet's ever experienced before. And it's also unlike anything that World Central Kitchen has ever had to respond to. This is a, a disaster that is not taking place in one location, but a disaster that's taking place everywhere, from big cities to small towns. Um, you know, it's really impacting everyone, and that requires a very different approach. Right. Well, so because it's global and, you know, initially you guys, like when the pandemic first started, you like went to help um, a cruise ship, right? You started there. And was that sort of the indication of, oh my God, this is going to be bigger. We need to get prepared. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. So we, um, we've been actually working, responding to COVID-19 for quite a while now, since the beginning of February. Um, And that started with World Central Kitchen uh, heading out to Japan. Um, We uh, got reached out to by uh, Carnival cruise ships. Their uh, uh, Diamond Princess cruise ship was quarantined off the coast of Japan. And it required us to really think through and reinvent the way that we cooked and distributed meals. Um, you know, we had to take into account the safety that, that we had never uh, had to think about before. Normally, you're thinking about food safety and making sure temperatures are right and making sure. But this is, you know, this is a, a virus that you can't see um, and, and you don't even know who's carrying it. So, you know, from our time in Japan, it was actually very clear when we hit the ground in Japan that things were going to be a lot worse than than I think a lot of folks had expected because this virus was spreading so rapidly on the ship and it was also spreading off of the ship from the healthcare workers that had been going in despite precautions being taken. So it was the first real clear sign to us that... Nate, can I ask a yep. question? I don't want to get into, into the minutiae, but I'm just sort of curious. Like, yeah. when was your first time dealing with the COVID and the, the a pandemic? Were you... Was everybody covered up? Were you wearing masks? Did everybody have gloves? Like, was everybody aware of the spreadability back then in early February? So I, I think we, a lot of folks were not aware, but we were taking way extra precautions. So everybody was wearing masks. Um, everybody was wearing gloves. It was actually easier to get masks back then because there wasn't a huge global rush on on masks, except except in China. And so... We were, we were very, very careful, and we made sure that you know, our teams were, were following protocols. Now, we still didn't have all the information back then. Even back then, they didn't really understand how, how quickly and easily it could spread or how long you could be asymptomatic and still carrying the virus. So 
you know, but, but we did put the protocols in place that kept everyone safe, but you're absolutely right. It was, um, you know, it was the very beginning of really starting to understand how big this thing was going to get. Now you come up here, you moved to D you're back in DC. It's spread all around the country. How did you, what did you guys figure out? How were you like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Cause you really, you grew the concept and you figured, especially with restaurants shutting down, you figured a way to put money in restaurants' pockets, which is brilliant. This really is, uh, you know, unlike anything that, that, that we've ever faced before. And so it required a new approach. It required um, uh, a different, uh, different model than we had traditionally taken. You know, normally we're, we go into natural disasters where everything is destroyed or, you know, damaged, or there's no electricity, or there's no running water, and we have to get these kitchens functional and working again. You know, in this case, nothing's destroyed. All the infrastructure is there. You have thousands, hundreds of thousands of cooks and chefs and restaurants wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to make food. And on the other side of the coin, you have all of these individuals now, all of these, our, our, fellow, our fellow Americans who are now out of work, over 30 million Americans are out of work right now, not receiving paychecks struggling to put food on the table for their families. And so for us, it was very logical to connect the dots, but we didn't start there. What we started was, was as we always do, we start small. So we, we began focusing on New York, which we was very clear was going to be the, um, you know, the epicenter of this uh, to start in the United States. And we started very rapidly to get our teams on the ground. We started to get a supply chain for food. We started to, to start preparing meals. We started working with a, a partner a, a production kitchen where we could produce sealed, individually packaged meals, which is so critical now. You know, normally we go in and produce a lot of meals and we go to a place and we can serve those meals like in a shelter after a, after a hurricane. Um, but, you know, in this case, everything has to be individual. But isn't that part of World Central Kitchen? It's not just, it's, you are feeding people, but part of it is a smile, a face, like somebody there with you. Do you know what I mean? Like Definitely. It requires a lot more work because you have to individually package everything. Everything has to be grab, you know, grab and go super quick. You can't have people congregating together. And so, you know, for us, it was, it was a different model that had to be built. So we very quickly started scaling up um, across New York City and expanding into California, into uh, here in DC and Little Rock, Arkansas, and just state by state. And now we're serving over 200,000 meals per day across the, uh, across the country. We, um, we have teams all over, we're in uh, well over 100 cities right now where we're serving meals. But one of the things we realized, to your point, is that we have all of these restaurants right now that are wanting to go back to business and are struggling to survive. And many of them may not survive. So, you know, we thought, why, why, are, why is World Central Kitchen doing all the cooking when we have all of these restaurants that we could put back to work? And so that became, and that has now become our really our primary focus. So essentially what we do is we identify restaurants in areas that there's, there's clear needs. So these could be seniors that are isolated. These could be you know, communities that are out of work or really struggling to put food on the table, students that are out of school. And then we can identify restaurants in those communities and pay them to prepare those meals. So in the process, we can pay them a per meal price. The restaurant can go back to work and do what it normally does. We can guarantee them a set amount of revenue for their business. And that way, you know, hopefully 
um, in the process of, of feeding, you know, feeding our neighbors, we can save some of our restaurants that right now, you know, it's, it's, it's a really having a really tough time. Well, now, I will say, sorry, let me, let me take you back to one of those points you made, because all of this takes money. Where does the money come from? Is it all individual donations? Is FEMA giving you money? Are the, you know, how is that with the states? How is all that money? Where's it coming from? So right now, everything is 100% donations. It's philanthropy um, from individuals giving $10 online up to some, uh, you know, foundations and some other other individuals giving giving much higher sums to support the work. Um, World Central Kitchen in general is always people powered. Over 70% of our, our funding comes from small donations that people that people give us. So, you know, it, it is right now, it's all philanthropy. Now, the reality is the scale of this problem we're facing now is so large that a nonprofit like World Central Kitchen can't feed everyone. Um, we, we're, we're barely able to respond to the, the areas that we're, that we're serving right now. And so as we grow and as we expand, our hope is by showing this model, by showing how restaurants can be put to work back to the service of our country, we will be able to, t to, to leverage that to basically to get larger support, to get the government to come in and say, to get FEMA to come in and say, hey, FEMA can start paying the restaurants to do these meals rather than, say, a big government contractor or something. And okay. it's actually already starting to work, which is great. I'm so sorry. I got to interrupt you because we got to take a quick break. Yep. Uh, we'll come back because we have a couple more questions. So this is David and Nikki Nellis, Foodie and the Beast. We're talking with Nate Nuke of World Central Kitchen. We'll be back in just a sec. All right, you're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking to Nate Mook, who's the CEO of World Central Kitchen, founded by our friend, our celebrity chef here in D.C. and around the world, Jose Andres. Uh, Nate, as you look forward, I guess, they're talking about a big second wave of coronavirus in the fall, and we haven't, we haven't resolved this one yet, um, despite uh, all those demonstrations of people who... <laughs> who think they're being held back in some way. Okay, that's it's another show. Another show. But I mean, how will you prepare for that? Because they're talking about a second wave that could be worse than this. Yeah, so, you know, what we're trying to really develop right now is this model where uh, we've currently activated about 635 restaurants around the country. Um, we've put uh, close to $9 million directly back into the hands of small restaurants around the country right now. Uh, we really want to show that this model works for the future, where if we need to, we can tap into our local small restaurants, pay them, put them back to work, and feed those in need during crises like this. And so... Isn't, isn't uh, the governor of California basically, I mean, no pride of authorship, right? Like, he was, isn't the governor of California basically like, we can do this too? Like, he's realizing that it's a, a viable method? Absolutely, exactly. And so we're working very closely with Governor Newsom in California. We are also pushing the federal government right now to uh, to to basically uh, enable this, enable states to do this, enable states to activate their local restaurants to feed those that are in need. And so um, that's, I think, you know, really what we're going for is if we can show this model works and scale it up, which we're already starting to do all across the country. That's going to be, I think, the, the, the way that we can respond to this in the future. We're, Nate, Nate, I have one last question for you. I, I mean, I, there, we could spend the whole show with you. because <laughs> No problem. I have one last question. So 
you know, we're talking with lots of people every week and on our other show about, you know, everybody's trying to help, right? There's all these charities out there and everybody's doing their best. But how, where's the umbrella? How do you guys go about finding who the need is? Do you know what I mean? And, and making yeah. sure that you're, that who, who needs the help? Like, you know, like, we're talking to somebody right after you who is really doing fabulous work as well. And Eric Bruner Yang, he's doing fabulous work. Like everybody's doing, everybody's going out to do what they can to help. But how do we do it so that it's like a concerted effort as opposed to everybody? So it's efficient, not inefficient. Exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. You know, I think right now there is no shortage of need. Um, we have so many people that are struggling right now that every little bit helps. And I think everybody is finding their own ways to make a difference. And I think that's wonderful. I think the best way is to, is to share the stories, right? Inspire others, um, the creative ideas, you know, what Eric's doing with starting with his restaurants and growing from there. I think, you know, these types of initiatives are, are all making a big difference when you look sort of cumulatively at the at, at the response. And so, you know, I think the best thing we can do is is really be cognizant. Remember that um, you know there there are a lot of a lot of families hurting right now, and think about how we can use our experience and our expertise to you know to to maybe give back a little bit. And and you know, and not everybody can go volunteer. Not everybody can donate. But, you know, there are ways to get involved. Sometimes maybe that's amplifying the work of others and just getting it out there or encouraging, you know, donations for certain things or, or, or getting behind certain policy initiatives that will support our communities like, you know, uh, school feeding programs and SNAP and things like that, that, that right now, especially looking at food, are going to be so critical. So I think the best way is just remain, remain engaged. Uh, you know, share what you're seeing, share what's happening, and then and then find you know find whatever little things you can do because little things can turn into big things. Well, that's our our perfect segue to the the last thing before we say goodbye, and that is please tell everybody how they can find and donate to World Central Kitchen online. Yeah, so uh, you can follow us wck.org. Um, you can also follow us on on Twitter and and Instagram and all of those social medias. Uh, I encourage you also to follow our founder, Chef Jose Andres. Um, you know, we're, we're every day we're sharing uh, what's going on, what's happening. Right now, this very second, we're distributing 25,000 meals at Camden Yards in Baltimore to families. We have things going on all the time. We do have volunteer opportunities. So if folks can come to WCK.org, you can see what's going on, um, you know, how to get involved and also how to support our efforts. Great. Thank you, as always for a lot of substance and a lot of great info. Thanks, Nate. Thank you, David. Thanks, Nikki. Bye-bye. All right, so now we're joined by Nicole Marquis. She's the founder and CEO of Hip City Veg. She's uh, a Hip City Veg originally out of Philly, but also here in D.C. now. She's leading a really interesting response to the food shortages or, uh, you know, caused by the pandemic, um, the delivering meals to every hospital, battling COVID-19, and a lot more. Uh, Nicole, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me, you guys. This is great. Thank you. So listen, it's great to have you back on air. I mean, we've had you on in happier times when you were opening up in and around D.C. Okay. Um, so tell me, because you're out of Philly, tell us like how the pandemic hit you all up there and how you were able to like figure out what to do with your business model. And let's explain to everybody what your business model is first and how you switched it up. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Hip City Veg is a 100% plant-based, fast, casual restaurant. We serve American classics like burgers, shakes, nuggets, and fries. Uh -huh. Just happens to be plant-based. And we're based in Philadelphia and have five locations there and two in D.C. And soon, we hope a third, we were planning before the crisis hit, to open uh by the Navy Yard. So, you know, the last six weeks have been so challenging for our city and our country. And we're just glad to be finally, finally be able to do something tangible and grateful that we can help in this time. Mm -hmm. And so what did you guys do? Like, what did you decide to do in Philly? And then like, were you able, like, what's it like in Philly? Can you do to go like down here? How it, How does it work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we can do to-go uh, curbside pickup and uh, free uh, no-contact delivery. You know, right after the shutdown, we were devastated. The whole industry, I mean, all of us, D.C., Philadelphia, the restaurant industry has been hit in the gut like no other. And uh, it was a heartbreaking process having to let go of hundreds of employees in a matter of days, people we love and worked with for years and years. And so we decided to launch Save Philly Restaurants to bring together the top restaurateurs in the city to advocate for what we needed to survive. And we had we needed to advocate together for Philly restaurants, but the restaurant industry as a whole, a whole and in DC to get the help we need from the city, state and federal government to make our iconic restaurants still survive uh, and reopen our doors after the crisis. So was that like a lobbying arm? Like what were you playing? Like what, what was the goal of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we can find our, uh, our priorities on savephillyrestaurants.com. It definitely is an advocacy group uh, for the restaurant industry, for our employees who we know are among the most vulnerable mm -hmm. and uh, really to lobby and put pressure on all levels of government to bring in some relief because it has been devastating. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, when you say bring in some relief, you know, you've got a, uh, a number of programs from the feds that are kind of herky jerky in their response. What is the state doing? Yeah, that's great. I mean, right now our focus is uh, pressuring the state to be flexible and lenient with their liquor control board so that we can sell alcohol uh, takeout. That's a big thing and a game changer for so many restaurants who depend mm -hmm. on that revenue. And it's a game changer also for the state to bring in revenue for the state as well. Right. Um, you know, the state is in dire need as well. We know that funds are very limited, but we're talking on a weekly basis with Congress members, with state senators, um, and with our city officials. We, we need more, we need to put more pressure on getting additional relief funds to the small businesses who are not able to tap in to the PPP loan uh, after it had depleted so quickly. Right. And what are, like, what are you doing to help those? And what's your new initiative? Right. So our company is based in Philadelphia. And before the crisis, uh, we were talking to NBA player Shake Milton, who is a rising star point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers. And he's a big fan of our food. And we were talking about fun ways to support each other before this all happened. But once the crisis hit, we decided we have to pivot to do something for our community. And I'm a Philly girl, born and raised. Mm -hmm. Jake Milton donated enough money to help us feed 500 frontline healthcare workers and 
since then, what's happened has been incredible. The, our entire community has supported the initiative. We've now been able to deliver over 1,500 meals to Philadelphia healthcare heroes and are extending that to DC, which is my adopted hometown. And I love that city and so many uh, places are in need right now in DC as well. So it's been uh, quite a journey, but our team is out there delivering meals every single day to healthcare heroes and to other people in need. Well, and right, but how are you, do people donate? Like how, how did you put the system together? Because as we were, you came in while we were talking with Nate Mook from World Central Kitchen, you know, there's so many people in need. So how do you go about finding those people in need and how are you doing the fundraising to feed them? Yeah, you know, we were absolutely bowled over by how many hospitals wanted us to help them feed their staff. They are working day and night and barely have enough time to eat, let alone get food delivered. Mm -hmm. we're, getting, we're getting DMs, text messages, emails from nurses and doctors who want us to come to them next. And also parents and family members who want us to send food to their children's unit or to their family member's unit. So, you know, mm -hmm. if someone's in the hospital, they want to thank the hospital, yeah. hospital for helping. Mm. So it's really coming from every angle, the, the need for, for this. And we love to be able to feed them all nourishing plant-based food. Right. So what we set up was a really easy Venmo account. Uh, $10 goes to feed and deliver a healthcare healthcare hero or frontline worker. Mm -hmm. And that's an entire meal. So it's really easy from your home. If you feel like helpless and hopeless and you don't know what to do and you want to get into action and really help the community, $10 goes a long way to really showing our, our frontline heroes that we're here to support them as well. Hey, Nicole, we have to take a quick break. Just hold on for a couple minutes and we'll come back and um, talk more about the impending meat shortage and what it means for a plant-based operation. Yeah. This is David and Nikki Nellis. It's Foodie and the Beast. We're talking with Hip City Veg. Get some plant-based into your life. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, second. everybody. This is David and Nikki Nellis on Foodie and the Beast. We're back speaking with Nicole Marquis of Hip City Veg. Uh, Nicole, there is a whole kerfuffle going on now between the meat industry and the government um, regarding whether or not some of these uh, huge plants should be shut down. And I would think from your perspective, that's probably a good thing um, uh, because eating plant-based foods can save water and reduce the carbon footprint and, uh, and uh, save rainforest and um, save cattle's lives too. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about your kind of your battle plan, should that actually happen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, between the meat shortage and the connection we're seeing between this and other diseases and the consumption of wild animals and zoonotic diseases that usually pass through wild animals to domestic livestock, this mm -hmm. is the ideal opportunity for all of us to take a better look at what we are eating. It is the perfect time for anyone who has been thinking about going plant-based to, to try it. You know, maybe one day a week or one or two meals a day. That's how I started. And it was a long period of transition for me from not eating beef to becoming pescatarian and then vegetarian and finally vegan, which I've been mm -hmm. for 12 years. You know, working in a slaughterhouse is one of the hardest, most awful jobs imaginable. And now, can you imagine it if it's unsafe because your coworkers may have COVID-19 and you're working shoulder to shoulder with them? It's right. a total nightmare. 
Mm -hmm. So I'm really hoping that this crisis gets us all to reflect on that devastating effect that animal agriculture has had on the country. How horrible factory farming is and what it's contributing to this devastation. Well, do they, let me ask a question, uh, along with the, you know, the danger from your coworkers, do they know anything about how the, the virus can be transferred through a cough or a sneeze uh, to the meat itself that then gets packed up and sent out into the world? You know, it's a great question. I know uh, from some research, this is not a GI uh, virus. This is not sort of something that if you, you ingest and then it affects the GI tract. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I don't, I don't think that um, there's a, a scare there. But I, it's a great question that you bring up because what is it about these meat packing plants that seem to be a perfect medium? for transmitting this disease so easily. I mean, more than 5,000 people have been hospitalized or showing system, uh, symptoms in the meatpacking plants, according to the Labor Union, United Food and Commercial Workers. That's, mm -hmm. that's really a wild number. Well, I, I mean, we could, get, we could go down a rabbit hole about the treatment of their employees and what the problems are. Yes. And I think you're 100% right. Um, you know, for those who don't want to go completely plant-based, but there is some sort of myth that we all believe that we should have meat on our plate, that it's a sign of either wealth or health or whatever it is. And the truth is we don't need the amount of meat that is currently in circulation. I mean, that's just the truth. Um, well, Nicole, we really appreciate you coming on and joining us today. Give us um, where people can find you and how people can donate. Absolutely. So hipcityveg.com, our website, has a ton of updates and ways where you can really contribute and get involved in advocacy work or donating to the community. Uh, hip, you can Venmo hipcityveg and we can donate directly to a hospital or a frontline hero. Savephillyrestaurants.com if you're interested in signing the petition. And as we work to lobby our government to give the restaurant industries and restaurant workers relief right now, um, those are the best ways to, to, get, to get involved. And I just wanted to say to both of you, thank you so much for all of your support and all the support you give to the restaurant industry all these years. Uh, it's tremendous and, and we really do appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. That, that really does mean a lot. Thanks, Nicole. This is David and Nikki Nellis. It's Foodie and the Beast talking to Eric Bruner Yang. He is the celebrated chef restaurateur. He's a multi-James Beard finalist, four-time Michelin Bib Gourmand recipient for his restaurants, but he's also a really, really good guy. And when the coronavirus pandemic hit and the restaurant industry was shaken to its very foundations, uh, Eric jumped in with a great idea called The Power of Ten, and we brought him on to tell everybody all about it. Eric? So tell us, like, you and I talked uh, pretty quickly after you launched Power of Ten on the other show, Industry Night. But let's catch people up. You like two weeks after we were like knee deep in the pandemic, you came up with this concept. Yeah, so we launched this idea called the Power of Ten on March 26th in Washington D.C. And the basic format, ideally, is just that like ten thousand dollars a week in donations can supplement or create 10 full-time jobs and service a thousand free meals in any community in America. Mm -hmm. um, we started in DC and we sponsored a, a restaurant in my neighborhood called Kane, which is an amazing Trinidadian restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, and we're a little over a month now 
Um, and so now we have six DC restaurants participating. Uh, we've served um, 20,000 meals as of today. Uh-huh. I'm actually in the middle of packing up 650 meals. That's why I was like, can it wait? Yes. Um, and then, um, uh, and we've raised about 200,000 in about a month. Well, I, I mean, congratulations. It's amazing. I'm so glad the initiative has really taken off. But how did you come up with the math on the initiative? Because, I mean, it sounds good, you know, the power of 10. But how did you figure out the math so that it would work? Um, so uh, leading up to it, it was really just kind of like what I needed to do for my businesses. Um, for maybe the listeners that don't know, um, I own Maketo, ABC Pony brothers and sisters and spoken English. Mm-hmm. Um, in my company for national, um, we were 250 employees and now we're about 45 employees. But when the restaurant um, got shut down on March 15th, you know, we were down to about 15 employees mm-hmm. um, before we really launched the power of 10. And the idea was, was like, what do my business need to do on a weekly basis to at least keep the existing people I still have left and how many dinners are we going to sell? And after you kind of like round up and you try to think of a good branding way of doing it, ideally it was we needed to serve a thousand dinners a week um, and generate $10,000 worth of income. And we'd be able to keep 10 of us working um, at least at minimum wage. So mathematically you basically have like half the money for labor and half the money for food. Uh And people are like, well, you can really make a lot with, a $5 food cost, but I always like to tell people like uh, a $5 food cost plate at any restaurant um, that you go to is probably a 15 to $20 appetizer or entree. So you can really get a pretty substantial, nice meal with that. That's amazing. And then how do you find the people that you're feeding? Because that we had Nate Muth from World Central Kitchen on before. And that was one yep. of the things we were talking about. There's so many people in need. How do you keep it efficient? Yeah, so when we started with Kane, um, we were directly servicing Washington Hospital Center. So uh-huh. he's delivered 5,000 meals to Washington Hospital Center. How many? To the one, uh, 5,000 meals since we've started Wow! to Washington Hospital Center. And we deliver every day at one o'clock to the same group for the last five weeks. Mm-hmm. I think that's like um, what was really key to our program was making sure that any restaurant that was participating, they had like a consistent source of income. And then anybody receiving the food had a very consistent relationship with the food that was being delivered. So well, Eric, you, um, you have pretty impressive partners um, uh, out on the West Coast in this too. The Power of 10 is not just limited to uh, uh, the, the Washington restaurant community. Yeah, so two weeks ago, you know, when I do this pitch, I always say that this math will work in any community in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so two weeks ago, we launched in the Los Angeles area um, with this restaurant called Sushi Kiyosuza. Um, we actually all met via Instagram, um, and there was a young man there named David Curtis, and he really wanted to um, launch Power of Ten in his own community, and we got connected with this amazing restaurant who turns out, you know, their daughter is a famous Olympian, and it was pretty kind of special to connect all these thoughts. All right, and what's, what, well, let me ask you this, what's the future of this? I mean, as long, right. because they're talking about a second wave in September, that could be worse than what we're experiencing now. 
And, um, you know, Nikki won't like this, but the government's kind of stumble bum uh, response to this has left it up to folks like you and folks like Jose and folks like every, you know, every other person that wants to help kind of running their own operation. So uh, uh, do you look to expand this to other cities? Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, we want to make sure that anybody that's in our group of power of 10, whether it's the people getting the food and or the people getting the funding, that we can at least guarantee four weeks of service. Um, so that really kind of limits like our, our ability to rapidly grow um, because we it really is about trickle up economics. You know, one $10 meal can touch so many people. It helps the restaurant uh, owner, then to the restaurant employee then to the vendor, then to the people that need the food. Um, so it's got a really good kind of cyclical feel to it. Um, our ultimate goal is that we feel like all restaurants, small independent operators who are going to be kind of left behind um, and missing in the gaps between state and federal relief um, need to kind of really create their own social safety nets. And that's kind of what I hope Power of 10 can do moving forward. Amazing. Right. How can people help, Eric? Like, how can we get involved? Um, how can the listener get involved? Yeah, actually, I need I need two things right now. Um, one, you can always just help, um, and just by donating to our website, which is powerof10initiative.com, and you can purchase meals in increments of ten bucks for mm-hmm. us to make for someone else. That's a that's an easy way to do it um, if you have the means. And thank you, thank you. And then, actually, we're actively we really need to. Um, cargo vans or clean emptied out minivans right now so if you are quarantined and working from home and you don't need your large vehicle uh, we definitely do um, we're doing six seven thousand meals a week right now just in the district um, just in the DMV um, and uh, some better vehicles would be amazing excellent okay well tell people where they can go so that they can donate their cars or donate money uh, yeah, you can just reach me at um, through our website. There's a contact us, and that website is um, powerof10initiative.com. Excellent. Eric, thanks. No, you're so busy doing amazing work. Thank you so much for joining us on air today. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. When we come back, we'll be talking with Scott and Becky Harris, Contopton Creek. Hi, you're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis, and we're talking to Scott and and uh, Becky, Becky Harris, Becky, uh, like as am I, a recent dog bite victim. And of course, uh, we're we're all on a Zoom sort of thing here. We just saw their puppy. They got a new puppy. We got a new puppy. So did we, except ours now weighs a hundred pounds. We don't know what to do with it. Look at that little thing. Look at that. What is that? What kind He's of pug? He's a pug, a little black pug. He's delicious. Hello. Probably yep. uh, weighs less than your dog's poops. <laughs> That dog, is true. Dog, I thought I had the Rockies in the backyard this morning. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit. Well, we The very, very first time we talked to you guys, you had just started Catoctin Creek. You were the first distillers in Loudoun County since They just celebrated Pro- their 10-year Prohibition. anniversary. Now you're, you're, you're big, you went big time. You've got distribution all over the country, I think, right? Pretty much. Yeah, a lot of it. And suddenly the, the uh, pandemic hits. And business goes kaflui. So tell us what happened and what you guys have done to respond. Yeah, so it, it all happened so quickly. It was unbelievable. Um, you know, this was probably the last week of March or maybe 10 days before the last end of March. Yeah, like March 
I don't know, 20th or so, all of a sudden, like, um, we thought people were going to start shutting down, shutting down and all this kind of stuff. And um, the governor of Virginia um, issued a couple executive orders um, reducing, ultimately reducing um, gatherings and closing our tasting room and reducing gatherings to like 10 or more people and basically stay at home kind of things. And at that time, we kind of saw this coming. And uh, so we pivoted quickly to start making hand sanitizer. So the first thing we had on hand right away was about 50 gallons of disposal alcohol that we would normally dispose of because it's from parts of the whiskey and gin production that aren't useful. They don't have good flavor. They don't have good flavor and they're not really drinkable. And no, so we, I mean, it's really interesting because all of a sudden we were hearing, you know, that distilleries were making hand sanitizer and I was kind of like, with like how like yeah it's not that easy to do right you know i've been getting i've been getting high off hand sanitizer for years <laughs> well what we had was basically the the heads and tails cuts of you know gin and whiskey that we had done mm -hmm. and so we basically gave that away for free it was like bring your own container and and come by and pick it up and we had everyone from you know local nursing homes to the faa coming to the distillery and picking up some of that stuff just to clean, you know, like spray on a surface countertops and things like that. Um, but then realizing the demand and seeing kind of the, the, the way things were going, um, we also then ordered um, at that time first a thousand gallons of bulk ethanol because we can't make alcohol cheap enough or high enough proof to, to make it into hand sanitizer. You know, we're a whiskey distillery um, and you have to have a vodka still to do that. And so what we did then was we bought this bulk alcohol because we had all the permits in place to do that. And they brought in four gigantic totes of alcohol. And we started making hand sanitizer from that. Um, halfway through what that process. packaging it in? Because my understanding was part of the problem was if you weren't a hand if you weren't selling hand sanitizer before was finding the packaging because all they had was like big Absolutely. things instead of like individuals. Absolutely. So if you saw what we were delivering. We ended up finding some milk jugs, basically half gallon milk jugs that we could get. So mm -hmm. we had some of those going out to bulk customers. We had our 25 ounce, you know, 750 mil glass bottles, the whiskey bottle, because it was something we had on hand. And so a lot of people got um, hand sanitizer in what looks like a whiskey bottle. Um, and then we also were found a source for little eight ounce um, like water bottles, you know, and so we were able to get a bunch of those in as well and started basically hand bottling all this sanitizer you know with our crew what was nice is that because um you know we have salespeople out of dc maryland and in virginia um we pulled them in and said you guys are going to work production now and um and they were able to keep their jobs and come in and work production making this hand sanitizer our tasting room people, our tasting room people. Right. So we didn't have to lay anybody off um and that was because we were able to make hand sanitizer um so were you wholesaling it or retailing it? I, I mean, we, I, were, we were mostly mostly wholesale. So we were selling it into. Um, uh, we we registered with our with our Congress peoples. They put us in touch with like the Virginia Department of Emergency Management, the governor's office, all these places that needed bulk sanitizer. Um, Innova Hospital, you know, all kinds of places. Um, giant, the entire Mid Atlantic um, corporate um, of giant grocery stores. Um, came to us and, and bought um, two truckloads of sanitizer from us to keep all their grocery workers safe. Wow. So, okay, but now 
you're not doing hand sanitizer. Just last week, right? It was too expensive. The raw materials got really difficult to get a hold of. Um, and it got to be to a point where, I mean, it already was expensive for us to make it because labor here in Northern Virginia is not cheap. Mm-hmm. And um, essentially it got to the point where it was like, we can't make make ends meet with this. You know, this is really going to be something that we felt was temporary, that we would address an urgent need. And then we would, you know, back kind of away. step back and let others who the, are better set up do it. The price of bulk ethanol tripled since we started four weeks ago. Plus they want you to take um, delivery of about a tanker full at a time, which oh. is way more than I have room to keep on. And I wouldn't want it that much on here. Of course. Like, I mean, it's a shame that they're not, here you are pivoting in a crisis and they're not, right? Like, which is tragic. Well, the other thing is a lot of the big companies like Bacardi, Diageo, Purell are, yeah, are snapping up a lot of that production. And so they are going to provide that stuff. But again, as a little guy, it's hard to get in that supply chain once all those big guys start snapping up all the all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Even some of the uh, smaller or the larger craft distillers who have a bit more automated system, they're all, they have, they've making some of them are making 35,000 gallons a week. Wow. wow. So then now that you're not doing it, what are you doing? What are you doing? It was actually kind of serendipitous because it was at exactly the time when we were looking at, you know, this is going to be difficult to maintain the sanitizer for any amount of time. The Virginia ABC made a move to allow us the ability to ship direct to Virginia customers. Oh. So that that was huge, huge, huge for us. <laughs> I have to say, you don't hear it very often, but the Virginia ABC was really the leader in all of the um, control state, um, you know, uh, states that control the, the alcohol, they were the leader in that across the nation. So they were one of the first states to allow direct-to-consumer prob- shipping um, from our distillery to the consumer. There are probably about six or seven now, but at the time we did it, there was only just basically one or two. Yeah. Yes. So it's really amazing. And so what that did is the first day that they allowed direct-to-consumer shipping, we knew it was coming on Friday. We got a notice. And then on Saturday and Sunday, I spent the weekend putting together a website to sell our products. And on Monday, when it went live, um, that day we sold 80 um, shipments. And then wow. the next day we sold 80 more shipments. And then the next day we sold 50 shipments. I mean, it was basically like that week was like 10 times a normal good week for us. It was 10, 10x uh, growth. It was incredible. And we barely, barely were able to handle it. What's really interesting is as a, as part of the, our trade association, I've been I've talked to a bunch of different Virginia distilleries from those our size to those bigger than us and way smaller than us. Every single one of them has seen that kind of growth in their revenue just from the ability to mail it has made just, it was a game changer. Well, will that stick or are they- We're not sure, 50-50 chance, honestly. You know, the, the, the way the order is written right now, it's tied to the COVID crisis, and that means it would go away on June 10th when the governor's order expires. Well, but, so let's talk about, but you are also doing other things like cocktails and events. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're finding ways to still okay. connect with people um, because, you know, your distillery was a sort of the heartbeat of your business, even yeah. though you're in restaurants and hotels and you had all these accounts. The distillery your heartbeat. Yeah, we're definitely trying to find new ways to to you know do our business. 
the tasting room now is empty, right? It's completely empty. We don't have service at all in there. And so it's become like our Amazon shipping headquarters, you know, where we package all these boxes. It looks like a, a mess with bubble wrap and boxes everywhere. Um, so instead of, instead of um, having people do events at our place, one of the things we're doing now is shipping out bottled cocktails. So we have a neat collaboration with uh, Jeremy Ross at Sense of Thai Street in One Loudon in Ashburn. And he is making um, bottled cocktails um, for us. We've got a, a Gold Rush, a Boulevardier slash Negroni, and a um, Westside Derby. So those are three different cocktails. You, you basically are just buying the bottle with the mixer, and there's a little bit of headroom at the top, and you pour in the Catoctin Creek, and then shake it up, and you've got a nice cocktail ready to go. So we're selling those now out of our tasting room. We've explicitly made the cocktails such that if you put anything not Catoctin Creek in it, they'll explode instantly. So <laughs> an important point to make. Well, so guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Tell everybody where they can order Contacting Creek, where they can get these cocktails. And if you're doing Facebook Live events, I mean, obviously I'll post them on the list or you want it.com, but okay. just where people can find everything. Yeah, so everything can be from our website, Um, including our online store. And we are doing a bunch of fun Facebook Live events, about two or three a week. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. It's good to see you and hear you. And hopefully we'll see you guys in person soon. Becky, yeah. keep your fingers out of that pug's mouth. <laughs> I know. You, you watch for your puppy, too. Well, I've only got eight fingers left. So Take care, guys. Thank you well, so hi much. Guys. Yeah. All right. So that's our show for today. Everything you heard about uh, on today's show, you can find on Nikki's website, thelistareyouwantit.com. Follow her on Instagram. Follow her on Facebook. And you got stuff to say. I do. So we want to thank you all for tuning in today. These are strange and scary times, but we are really all in it together. So, you know, please check out the list or you want it.com. There are so many ways to connect with people in the DC food and wine community. They are there for you, whether it's to deliver you a meal or send you a cocktail, or you can help those who really don't have access to food as well. So that's all on the website. Of course, Industry Night is still running. I just uh, did a fabulous interview with the head of the Capital Area Food Bank, something you should totally tune into. And we'll be back next week with another amazing show. So be safe, be well, and hopefully we'll all be in studio soon.